Welcome to the Sunday service of the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. My name is Corrine Jackson, and I will be one of your service leaders today. Love is the spirit of this church, and service its law. This is our greatest co covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. It is good to be together in person and on Zoom. Please silence your devices as we begin this service. We gather together in gratitude on Treaty 6 land. This treaty, signed 145 years ago, is an inheritance, a responsibility, and a relationship. As part of that relationship, we have been sharing this year the new Indigenous names that have been given to Edmonton's 12 redrawn municipal wards. Today we share with you Ward 12. The Spomitami Ward is in southeast Edmonton. It is a Blackfoot word meaning star person. It refers to the Iron Creek meteorite or Manitou stone once located southeast of Edmonton. The 320-pound stone was shared by all the tribes and it was a place where Blackfoot people would perform ceremonies. In the 1800s, it was taken to Ontario by missionaries, but it is now back in the Royal Alberta Museum. The Blackfoot have many stories that acknowledge the sky and the stars often referred to as sky beings. Spomitima is a star person sent to earth by Nappy, the creator, to help Blackfoot people and the Bison ha to have a reciprocal relationship. Our service today is focused on an indigenous theme to honor the National Truth and Day of Nash, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation that was held four days ago. We will begin our service with a prelude.
Many of you will know that album, one of my absolute favorites by Gordon Ritchie. I'm Susan Rattan. I have prepared our service today with my heart and mind focused on the genocidal damage done by the residential school policy that began in Alberta in 1883, the same year that the CPR train reached Alberta. Three churches in particular, the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans, and Presbyterians, eagerly adopted a government program which would pay them so much ahead to run boarding schools for Indigenous children. Alberta had 25 of these schools, more than any other province. The three churches competed for children because they needed to get their numbers up in order to get the grants. I've chosen today to mark this tragedy by talking about what life was like before the residential schools, before the settler culture flooded across Alberta. Only by appreciating the life that existed before the Europeans arrived can we understand what was lost. I invite Adam Sandler to light Snyder. <laughs> Snyder! Not Adam Sandler couldn't make it. <laughs> Adam, please come up and light the chalice. Our words for lighting the chalice are by Viola Abbott. As we light the chalice and fully embrace the sacred space created here this morning, please hold in your hearts the Unitarian Universalist principle which calls upon us to respect the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Today, we remember those who share this earth with us no longer. We bear witness to their lives and the roles they have played in ours. We pay homage to and make stronger that web which connects us all. Ellen Logan will now read our opening words. Our opening words come from Embers, the book of meditations by indigenous writer Richard Wagamese. I've been considering the phrase, all my relations, for some time now. It's hugely important. It's our saving grace in the end. It points to the truth that we are all related that we are all connected, that we all belong to each other. The most important word is all. Not just those who look like me, sing like me, dance like me, speak like me, pray like me, or behave like me. All my relations. That means every person, just as it means every rock, mineral, blade of grass, and creature. We live because everything else does. If we were to choose collectively to live that teaching, the energy of our change of consciousness 
would heal each of us and heal the world. Let us now sing hymn number 298, Wake Now My Senses. Please rise as you are willing and able. going to get this right eventually. Generosity is a spiritual practice, one that enlarges the heart and lightens the spirit. For no matter how much or how little we have in the sharing of it, both the one who gives and the one who receives are blessed. We are a self-governing and self-supporting UCE community. We rely on your donations to support our staff and to offer our programs. Now more than ever, we need your financial support. Please visit our website at uce.ca and click on Donate in the upper left-hand corner to find the donation method that best suits you. For those here in person, you probably know there are collection plates there and there. As you know, half of our unidentified contributions to a Sunday morning go to a charity. This month's charity is an old friend of this congregation, Child Haven International. 
This Canadian charity was founded 36 years ago by Bonnie and Fred Cappuccino, and it supports women and children in developing countries through five homes it runs in India and one each in Nepal, Tibet, and Bangladesh. Now, with mics muted for those on Zoom, please join in singing hymn number 402, From You I Receive. This poem by Louise Haffey, whose Cree name is Sky Dancer, was written this year to honor the 125 children whose bodies were found in mass graves outside the Kamloops Residential School. Haffey was raised on the Saddle Lake Nation east of Edmonton and attended the Blue Quills Residential School in St. Paul. She is Canada's Parliamentary Poet Laureate. The past is always present. A cradle board hangs from a tree. A beaded moss bag is tucked into a small chest. A child's moccasin is tucked into a skunk pipe bag. Children's shoes in a ghost dance. A mother clutches these, palms held against her face. A river runs between her fingers. A small boy covered in soot. On all fours, a naked toddler plays in the water while her kokum skirt is wet to her calves. How tall are you now, she asks. I'm bigger than the, ro the blueberry bush. Oh, and as tall as an aspen where my birth is buried. See my belly button? Each have dragged a rabbit to the tent, a teepee, watched expert hands, skin butcher, make berry soup for dinner. Boy falls a robin with a slingshot. He is shown how to skewer the breast, roast the bird on hot coals. He will not kill without purpose again. The teepee, the tent, the log shack are empty. Trees crane their heads through the teepee flaps, the tent door through the cracks of the mud shack. A mother's long wail from 1890 carried in the wind. A grandparent pokes embers, a sprinkle of tobacco, cedar, sweet grass, fungus, sage, swirls upward. Children's creeks trickle in their sleep. A blanket of deep earth, covered fingers entwined, arms around each other. We have been waiting. It is time to release this storm that consumes all this nation. 
Awasis, the spirit light, these angels dance in the flame. The bones will tell their story. Listen, act. These children are ours, could be yours. I invite you now to participate in a ritual which will serve as both our candles and our time of meditation. Let us take a few minutes to think about the land we live on and of the people who have lived here for thousands of years. Let us think about what we must do to embrace truth and reconciliation and to embrace all my relations. For those in the church who wish to, please come forward and drop a stone in the water in remembrance of the indigenous people whose land we are on and what we owe them. For others, please take this quiet time to think about the land we inhabit and their first people. So uh, keeping your social distance, you know the drill, it's around the tree and then facing the camera up there. Good, so please start.
will place a few last stones in this water for all those who aren't here today to do it, those on Zoom or elsewhere, and for myself. And now we will sing hymn number 128. The following words come from the final report of the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Referring to the struggles of indigenous people to keep their identity and culture during more than a century of colonial oppression, the commission wrote, too many Canadians know little or nothing about the deep historical roots of these conflicts. This lack of historical knowledge has serious consequences for First Nations, Inuit and Métis people, and for Canada as a whole. In government circles, it makes for poor public policy decisions. In the public realm, it reinforces racist attitudes and fuels civic distrust between Aboriginal peoples and other Canadians. Too many Canadians still do not know the history of Aboriginal peoples' contributions to Canada, or understand that by virtue of the historical and modern treaties negotiated by our government, 
we are all treaty people. History plays an important role in reconciliation. To build for the future, Canadians must look to and learn from the past. The ring road around Edmonton is named for Anthony Henday, the famous Hudson's Bay man who in 1754 headed off from the company fort on Hudson Bay and trekked across the prairies all the way to the foothills of the Rockies. It was a historic expedition and his notes from the trip are an important record of what life was like before the settlers came. He's a Canadian hero. There's apparently a residence at the University of Alberta named for Hendy as well. But here's the thing. Stephen Bone, author of A New History of the Hudson's Bay Company, says that what Anthony Hendy did was the same long trip that Cree traders did every year. And after year after year after year, they hauled furs from the deep interior negotiated with the various First Nations along the way, which often had their own languages, negotiated with them, ended up at a trading post on Hudson Bay, and that then they bargained with the Bay men about getting the best value for the furs they brought in. And when Hende made his trip, he had several dozen Indigenous people guiding him, feeding him, translating for him the language of the various tribes they encountered. He was a tourist. They were the professionals. This was their home of many years. The Cree and Chippewyan of the northern forests who lit, traveled by canoe and ate fish. The Blackfoot of the south who rode horses and ate buffalo. Bone also describes a famous trek up into the Arctic in 1770, in which the tourist, Samuel Hearn, would become a celebrated hero. The actual leader of this trip was an indigenous man named Matanabe, whom Bone calls one of the greatest explorers of the north of the 18th century. There are no ring roads named for Matanabe as far as I know. Matanabe traveled with a huge group, including his six wives and numerous children. The wives reportedly were good for carrying heavy packs, setting up the tents, making the food, and keeping their husbands warm. Be because there was no written language before the Europeans, we only get glimpses of what life was like before the settlers invaded the prairies. But these glimpses are so important. We can't fully appreciate the devastation that hit these people in the late 1800s if we can't see what life was like before the disasters happened, before the disappearance of the buffalo, the decline of the fur trade, the flood of settlers into Alberta starting in 1883, the spread of European diseases, and then, most horrifically, the residential schools. We do get glimpses, however, 
and more all the time as research expands. We now know that tr the trade routes across the continents had been used for years by indigenous traders. It was such trade routes that brought European horses up from Mexico and European guns down from the Hudson Bay forts. The Northern Cree of Ontario for many, many years traded their furs for the corn of the Southern Ontario Iroquois. Traditional beadwork that can be found on the prairies has little shells embroidered into it which come from the West Coast and that's because of trade that went on for endless years between the Prairie Indians and the West Coast Indians. That trade involved traveling great distances with no modern transportation. So these trade gatherings were usually once a year. They were accompanied by huge celebrations, negotiations, singing and dancing. Often women from one tribe ended up in another tribe. When the Hudson's Bay Company began its fur trading around 1670, it wisely adopted the same elaborate trading customs and gifts and banquets and discussions lasting weeks. We should not idealize what pre-European life was, of course. There were years of great hardship and there was violence. The Chippewayan and Inuit of Alberta's north fought over access to the Caribbean caribou hunting grounds. But still, there was a harmony between the people and the environment around them that we can only marvel at. Indigenous people used the natural resources around them, of course, but never to an extent that threatened that ecological balance. And there was beauty. The artwork of the first people of our region was the decoration in beads and porcupine quills on their clothes and moccasins, a portable art suited to people who moved around throughout the year. The native peoples of this country didn't own the land or the buffalo or the caribou. They used the resources, but respectfully and with reverence. Their fellow creature were their relations. For example, the two social groups of the Clinket Nation on the West Coast were called the Eagle and the Raven. And there are endless stories from that time about both of those birds. Nor did they punish wrongdoers in the way Europeans have always done. They shunned them and shamed them, helping them to understand the wrong they had done. Nor did they send their children to school. Children learned from being a key part of everything happened in each of those communities. The author Bone argues that the first century of the fur trade, when the Hudson Bay Company held complete control, was a time of healthy relationships between the First Nations of the Prairies and the traders. With a few rare exceptions like Hende and Hearn, the Bay men stayed in their forts on Hudson Bay and let the beaver skins come to them with all the indigenous intermediaries. 
the Cree became specialists at acting as intermediaries who visited the island hunters, inland hunters, took their skins and transported them to the forts. Afterwards, they returned with the payment, typically metal pots and knives, to the appropriate tribes. As European habits and technology invaded the plains in the late 1700s and onward, that balanced life started to change. After the British took control of Quebec in 1760, a secondary fur trade started out of Montreal following the creation of the Northwest Company. The men of the Northwest Company worked a lot harder than the baymen. From their base in what is now Thunder Bay, they traveled throughout the prairie provinces, setting up little forts and diverting the furs that would otherwise go to the bay. They brought with them their preferred trading item, alcohol. They also brought disease, and there were several severe pandemics during this time in the indigenous population with huge loss of life. Eventually, the Bay Company felt the need to compete, and they started building their own forts throughout the region. They built Fort Edmonton in 1795, as you probably know, just months after our Northwest Fort went up near what is Fort Saskatchewan today. All of this and the competition between the two companies expanded the European impact on the First Nations. Hunting buffalo with a horse and gun rather than on foot with a, a spear became standard and infinitely easier. And in the 1800s, the buffalo hunt became to some degree a commercial enterprise. Buffalo car carcasses could be used to make fur robes that could be taken down to Minneapolis and sold. Sadly, overhunting started reducing the buffalo populations from an estimated 60 million in 1600 to near extinction by 1880. Lake hole traps from Europe in the early 1800s did the same thing to the beaver. Guns also made disputes between tribes much more violent. And of course, the alcohol that the traders brought in caused serious social damage. Many of the fur traders at this time were themselves heavy drinkers. They were mainly Scotsmen, as you know. They shared their bad habits with their indigenous trading partners. This careless overuse of resources is a pattern that still dominates European and North American society. Part of the British Columbia fires of this summer can be connected to too much logging. Climate change is rapidly melting the glaciers that feed Alberta's rivers, yet that looming water shortage is hardly mentioned here. The favorite fish of my childhood in northern Manitoba, the pickerel, is so overfished today in northern Alberta lakes that to catch one, you need a permit similar to that of a big game hunter. We are trapped in a global culture of growth at all costs, of disrespecting the earth. 
When I think about how we can save ourselves, how we can retain a more balanced relationship to the earth, I think of the First Nations of the Canadian Plains. They did without many of the things we have, but they had a good life. They were healthy and their children thrived. We need to learn from them, their traditional respect for the environment, their lifestyle close to birds and animals and plants. This worldview of Indigenous people can be summed up as interconnectedness or all my relations. And that interconnectedness includes those who have gone before and those who will follow us. We here in Edmonton are so lucky. Our Indigenous population is about 80,000, which makes it the second highest of any city in Canada, Winnipeg being the highest. These people have been hard hit by the settler culture that has been here for 140 years, but they still have strong ties to the past. And we have terrific Indigenous organizations here, like the Bent Arrow Traditional healing society that are crucial to building a better life. Our city government is even doing its part. I have learned a lot from reading about the new indigenous names of Edmonton's wards. The mix of people who have called Edmonton home for centuries and their struggles with settler culture. I'm delighted that the city is now beginning talks towards creating an urban reserve. We as a congregation must play our part in restoring Indigenous people to their rightful place in our society. There is a social justice role for, for us here that we must be forever focused on, that we take our place in Treaty 6 seriously. We must also embrace the spiritual teachings of First Nations people, find our way back to the deep ties of the earth and sky. My tiny attempt this summer is to share my garden with the bees. I have noticed that there are some really pretty flowers that the bees completely ignore, and other kind of scruffy ground cover type flowers that the bees go crazy for. So in future, what goes in my garden will be what the bees choose, not what I choose. They are part of my relations. And just as the Indigenous people don't just focus on gardens, but to the wide lands around us, I commit myself to preventing any further improvements to our river valley. We have hardly begun to understand how vital that river valley is to us. Finally, I think that just as West Coast First Nations have always celebrated and valued the raven, we here in Edmonton should celebrate our own rascal, the magpie. <laughs> they're smart, they're tough, they're playful, and they like Edmonton. For sure, they're one of our relations. Blessed be. And now we are going to sing hymn number 318, We Would Be One.
Before we sing Carry the Flame, I want to salute those who helped make this service possible. Our readers, Corinne Jackson and Ellen Logan, our chalice lighter, Adam Snyder, and our hugely important and tireless tech crew, Andrew Mills, Mike Keast, Ruth Marriott, and John Pater. You folks need to know that these four have been committed, committing themselves to working out the bugs of our new streaming system. Then, once all the bugs are out, they're going to be looking for volunteers who will agree to be trained at one of the roles that they do up there. I now invite Adam to extinguish the chalice as I share these closing words. And Gordon, I'm sorry. <laughs> I had Karen Mills down here, so I didn't say it. <sighs> I did say the, the table crew, but I, wasn't, I didn't name them because I wasn't sure who they were. Table crew also needs volunteers. Oh, right, where was I? <laughs> Closing words are again from Rick, Richard Wagamese from his wonderful book, Embers. Um, many of you know this book and have this book. If you don't, I highly recommend it. It costs $20, get it from uh, Audrey's books and probably from chapters. It is love itself that brings us all together this human family we are part of, this singular voice that is the accumulation of all voices, raised together in praise of all creation, this one heartbeat, this one drum, this one immaculate love that put us here together so that we could learn its primary teaching, that love is the energy of creation, that it takes love to create love. We will now sing Carry the Flame and immediately afterwards there will be a short church-related announcement. The Church Services Committee, whose chair is the wonderful Gordon Ritchie, will officially welcome our new minister, Reverend Rosemary Morrison, during the morning service on October 24th. As part of that service, Reverend Rosemary will answer some questions. Here's where you come in. What would you like to know about her? Send your questions by Friday, October 22nd to Gordon Ritchie at ghritchie at telus.net. And if you don't have that in your memory uh, and you're really stuck, you could uh, email the office and they'll give you Gordon's email address. Thank you, we're done.